Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields, offering two very different perspectives. Yet with a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Hello, everybody. This is our fifth episode. Oh, my goodness. Sleeping issues. So we are going to unravel the sensory behavioral perspectives related to sleep in infants. So hopefully everyone is excited. OTs, ABAs, OTAs, RBTs, and I think we even have an SLP who recently reached out to us. So very exciting. This episode, we will demonstrate another sharp contrast between the ABA and OT perspective and intervention, and yet again, find a way to come together and collaborate because there's always a way. So last week, we covered early beginnings and examined the case uh, study of nine-month-old baby Stella and proposed some behavioral and OT-based interventions to address developmental delays. Today, we're going to continue to look into how humans develop from birth and cover the topic of sleeping challenges, something very close to every parent's heart. Good, and this week's shout-out goes to one of my favourite people on the planet, Dr. Patrick Fryman. He is Vice President of Outpatient Behavioural Health Services and a clinical professor in the Department of Paediatrics at the University of Nebraska School of Medicine, amongst lots of other things. I hope I got that right, but he is a a massive contributor to the field, both in paediatrics and in behaviour analysis. He has published over 180 scientific articles. I'm sure that number has changed since we even looked at how his last... Uh, the last data on his publishings and three books and he's the director of Boys Town. He's published on everything from how to get people to put rubbish in a bin uh, more frequently to sleep interventions for toddlers and infants. He's dedicated his life to the application of behavioural science to fields of behavioural paediatrics and behavioural medicine. His knowledge and work in the field of autism and parent training is extensive And if you want to give a public presentation of any sort, you better go and read his 15-step tutorial on public speaking. Absolutely brilliant. Dr. Fryman is one of my favourite public speakers. To me, he's the behaviour and the equivalent of Jim Carrey, but without... Without the crazy, right? That's probably really understating the extent of his his humour and his um, amazing speaking talents. But while he's published over 180 papers, one of his best-known interventions outside of behaviour analysis has been in the era of sleep challenges, and in particular an intervention referred to as the bedtime pass, which we are going to be presenting on in the next episode. And excitingly... (gasps) Offering our first deeper dive for those that want to learn how to use that intervention successfully. Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. Uh, so I saw him at a conference. I actually saw him speak. Oh my gosh, you are not kidding. He certainly is the Jim Carrey, a very smart version, I'm assuming, smarter than Jim Carrey, although I've heard Jim Carrey is pretty smart too. So yeah, I'm really excited about that. And the bedtime pass is brilliant. I have read the research and I think OTs will love it as well, just parents. Okay, so back to this episode though, we are going to just chat a little bit about the takeaways. We have two lovely resources for you. Uh, Of course, we always have research articles that are pertaining to the latest topic, but we have two sleep tools. One is by Greg Hanley, who is a behavior analyst, and the assessment is called the SATT, Sleep Assessment and Treatment Tool. And then the Brief Infant Sleep Questionnaire, BISC, which was originally created by Dr. Avi 
Sade and is avidly used in the world of pediatrics and in OT. So two great doctors, Dr. Greg, Han Greg Hanley and Dr. Avi Sade. All right, Mandy, you have never had sleep issues with your children, <laughs> right? They were always perfect angels, I'm sure. Uh, I did. I, um, I had sleep issues because I had two children before I came to the field of behavior analysis and learned a lot more about sleeping. But I feel like there was an entire decade of my life where I was totally sleep deprived. And yeah, really, it's only when I started to work in um, sleep interventions for children that I was working with in the field of behavior analysis where I learned a lot more about sleep. And when I finally taught my daughter with autism to sleep and stay in bed, it really changed my life. I mean, in profound ways, you know, it allowed me to get out and see friends again, to start engaging in exercise again. It changed my outlook on life, my ability to work effectively. Obviously, sleep is one of the most important behaviors that we engage in. And if you are being constantly woken at night, it is just like someone is, you know, stabbing you over and over again. It is, well, they use sleep deprivation as a form of torture, right? And that's exactly what it is. And there were times uh, in my daughter with autism's life where she didn't sleep more than an hour. And I remember, this is how desperate I got, because you do get pretty desperate when you are sleep deprived. The only way I could get any extended sleep, this is when she was quite a young child, is I had this really amazing bucket that she would sit up in. And she would be very happy sitting in the shower, you know, with the water and her toys. And she was safe because of sort of sitting, you know, sleeping right next to her. And I would lay down a towel in the shower and I would actually sleep in the shower for short periods of time. So it, I got very desperate because she was, she'd never sleep in the day and then she would fall asleep and it would be hard for her to fall asleep. And then she would wake after an hour and it was just uh, debilitating. I was trying to do a lot of intervention with her and so the only time I got where you know where she to update materials and, and look at you know read and research was when she was asleep so yeah it is a really challenging area and it's one of my real areas of passion so thank goodness you know now I have a lot more uh, tools and research at my fingertips and I really love to work with parents on sleep intervention. Gosh, so I was going to ask you what type of things you tried, car rides, swaddling, but you tried the shower. That's a new one for me. <laughs> yeah, so that was, you know, after my daughter was diagnosed with autism. But before that, with my first daughter, who's three and a half years older, yeah, I tried almost everything. She also was a poor sleeper. Now knowing what I know, you know, I was contributing to that fact by not teaching her how to self you know, go to sleep on her own. But back then I tried, you know, creating bedtime routines, very set things to do before we went to bed to induce sleep and create melatonin production. I tried, um, you know, swaddling. I had one of those slings and I would get her to fall asleep in the sling and then gently, you know, take it off from around my neck and lay it down on the bed. I became quite famous in our neighborhood because I was that crazy parent that was like, had my baby in a sling. I was walking around the neighborhood late at night and everybody knew me. I was a crazy sling lady. I lost 12 kilos with my first daughter because I had her in a, if anybody wants to lose weight and you have a baby, like, put her in a sling and walk. I tell you, it's so good. So I tried, yeah, as everything I could, warm baths, you know, aromatherapy oils, you name it, trying to create an environment that would induce sleep and keep my kids asleep. So yeah, I tried it all. Well, so it's interesting because, you know, there's such a cultural component to this. You know, we as parents aren't taught how to get 
a baby to sleep. Like that's not something that you sort of chat about. I think everyone assumes it's this sort of Johnson and Johnson moment, and it just happens. You、mm. see the baby just sleeping, right? But it's based a lot on modeling and parental values. So、uh, you know, my I'm Indian, and、um, very codependent sleeping. In culturally, in our values,、uh, basically, you, everything revolves around that baby, and you do everything to get them to sleep, and it's all about doing it for them for the most part. So, yeah, most people tend to try strategies that you know their parents, grandparents used, knowledge that's passed down from generations, rocking, swaddling. Those are you know very typical things. We do try to do it all, and most of it for typical kids, most of it works. Right? It's pretty reinforcing. Because when it works, then you do more of it, and obviously it's reinforcing because both the parent and the child get restful night of sleep. However, what happens when those strategies don't work? Right, that、mm. your mum taught you, or that you saw your aunt doing. So it's funny. My dad, when I first did the Ferber method with my son, he was horrified. He was like, "That's not the right way to take care of your baby," because he had the、uh, idea culturally, you know, the Indian way, which is basically you hold your baby all night. And but then, when I got my first son to start sleeping by himself, after that, anyone who would talk to him about a baby not sleeping, he'd send them to me. Like, Go <laughs>、right. talk to her. She knows how、yeah. to do it. So, you know, the Ferber method worked like a charm for them for my first one. Yes,、But、I mean, yeah, and I am.、Um, In the early days, when I was before my second daughter came along, I was in a yoga support group that I had. Actually, he was a he had lived a lot of his life in India. He was a a, a yoga guru, and he was very much about co sleeping as well. And I did that with both of my children. I co slept with them, and you know, self soothed them back to bed at night because of that. Not all of that kind of belief and understanding of、uh, attachment in early days, and I really thought that having close proximity. But I tell you what, the downside to that is I was very tired because I was very aware of my child's movements, and it created a very light sleeping in me. And even to this day, I think I'm still a very light sleeper as a result of being very attuned to noise in the environment. So, yeah, you're right. There is a big cultural aspect, and I know I'm working with one Indian family right now, and you know most of their community have their children up with them very late at night as well. So that that brings another perspective to、um, to sleeping too, having children go to bed at different times, etc. So yeah, it's definitely challenging. Oh gosh, yeah, and you know, I just remember after I got my first one to sleep through the night using Ferber and all that. I thought, I, I thought I was, I was such a you know arrogance <laughs> about it. I was like, I got this right, and then of course my second one comes along and the crying、rocks? never stopped. Yeah,、oh, he didn't read I, the Ferber book. <laughs> <laughs> I should have put him in the shower, like you suggested. Yeah, nah,、it、that is not、awful. my recommendation for anyone. By the way, just off the cuff, that no, is no. not a preferred intervention. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so he just cried all the time. Yeah, I remember we would take him for car rides. That was our go-to. Oh yeah, that is very common. Yeah, and then I did find out one night I happened to be taking a shower, had the dryer on, and that calmed him and got him to sleep. I thought, oh my gosh, I found something, but of course I couldn't leave the dryer on all night. Yeah. So then I tried the vacuum, and then I ended up actually finding a CD that had a recording 
of dryer or vacuum. I can't remember what it was. And I just played it on repeat all night. And it did the trick, but it was so interesting because it would,、um, you know, play the vacuum noise. And then, you know, when it would repeat, there'd be like a little pause, a tiny pause. And in that tiny pause, I would、Good. hear him stirring. Wow. I'm like, you can't be serious, you know? So, anyway, I just knew that it, you know, wasn't going to be a long term issue, something I'd have to address. And、uh, I can tell you as an OT, we have a plethora of clients who come to us with similar issues,、mm-hmm. but sleep is so complex. It's not a one size fits all. That's right. So, what is your thought on sleep? And- yeah, that's a summary of all the things I tried. So, <laughs> let's look at what medicine says then is normal sleep patterns. Because I, going back to when I had children, I didn't have you know, any data on how frequently they were sleeping, how long they were sleeping for, you know, whether that was normal or not.、Um, but some studies have suggested that babies sleep an average of 16 hours in a 24 hour period. And it's reported that between 20 and 30% of children experience sleep problems. And yeah, between, you said later on, Aditi, 40 to 80% of children with developmental disabilities have sleep disorders. That's not even just sleep challenges, but sleep disorders, which sort of meet a certain criteria for the, in terms of how long it takes them to go to sleep and how, you know, how long they stay asleep for. So there is absolutely no doubt that this is a significant problem. So, what does medicine say about what causes a human to fall asleep, Aditi? Or at least, how do OTs view sleep? Well, the anatomy of sleep requires various structures in the body sort of work in synchronicity, right? To develop those circadian rhythms involving sleep and wake cycles. But generally, what happens, very simplistically here, is the brainstem acts to reduce the activity of. The arousal centers in our brain and then relaxes the muscles so that we can go to sleep. And the pineal gland is what increases the production of melatonin, which many people take over the counter, which actually helps you to sleep when lights go down. The thalamus is the part of the brain that becomes really quiet and lets you tune out, sort of filter away the external world. And then, of course, here's the S word again. Sensory modulation is the in- integral factor here. If we can't modulate the sensory information that's in our environment, it's going to be hard to go to sleep. So, our ability to habituate and ignore irrelevant information, like dripping faucet or ticking of a clock, you know, all those aspects are going to interrupt sleep. And we need to do that, habituate to all that, so that we can calm the nervous system, which is the key. So, if we think about all the antics we do as parents to get our children to sleep, In reality, what we're doing is trying to help the body biologically get there, right? By shutting out all this sensory information, exposure to light, sounds, all that, while enhancing more of those rhythmical sensory input, like rocking, swaddling, doing all those activities in hopes of getting this biological process set in motion. Okay. So before all my bad habit and loop friends,、uh, <laughs> hear that S word and start、uh, reaching for their own pause button. Let's start by hearing an OT's perspective on sleep and then I'll outline a behavioral account on sleep of which there is, you know, a lot of research and, and data. You go ahead first, Eddie, and I won't, I promise not to use the pause button. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, 
you know, sleep for OTs really starts in the neonatal unit. I think that's the earliest that we start working on sleep because it's all about neuroprotective care in the NICU and preserving sleep. That's our main goal. And in OT, sleep is conceptualized more as a restorative occupation, so to speak, with the goal of rest and recuperation of the body. So obviously, when we work with clients from various backgrounds and diseases, diagnoses, you know, sleep is huge, hugely what we call an instrumental ADL. So in developing children, sleep serves multiple factors or functions, energy conservation, brain growth, memory consolidation, and obviously impacts cognition. So it's a very, very precious commodity for many of our clients, especially with ASD. And research indicates that insufficient sleep actually exacerbates the severity of core ASD symptoms, you know, the repetitive behaviors we might see, maladaptive behaviors, aggression, etc. So it tends to be one of the most burdensome complaints amongst parents of children with autism because obviously it's impacting everybody. It's not just the child, right? And and as you mentioned earlier, it's just pure torture. Yeah. Main issues we address are difficulty falling asleep, frequent wakings, shorter sleep, restlessness, etc. That's right. And then, you know, you add the parent's perspective that when you're dealing with autism, you they also have to get those kids off to therapy many times and being sleep deprived themselves and then dealing with sleep deprived children that brings, you know, a huge challenge. So I guess it's just one little disclaimer I wanted to throw in there that, you know, I'm sure everybody listening to this is aware that there are often medical underpinnings as well as, you know, behavioral complexities to sleep and that having, you know, medical sign off is always a prerequisite to me working with any clients that have sleep issues. So the use of some of the procedures that I talk about later on in this podcast is always subject to medical sign off to, you know, to commence that process. So let's talk about then, you know, behavioral accounts of sleeping behavior, because from our last episode, you remember, we looked at both you know, respondent and operant learning. And potentially there are respondent and operant components of sleep. It's not, in other words, if sleeping was easy, everybody would do it. If it's something that um, was like a, you know, blinking when you got water sprayed in your eyes, if it was like respondent behavior, then we wouldn't be needing to talk about sleep today. But it's it's complex because it isn't just one thing that has to happen in order to elicit sleep. So it's not purely respondent behavior from a behavioralist point of view. In other words, it's not unlearned behavior. It has to be, there's a learning component to it. There's no one unconditioned stimulus that elicits sleep like as I said, a puff of air in the eye elicits a blink or dust up the nose elicits a sneeze. That's not what sleeping is. Perhaps the behavior of falling asleep is reinforced by sleep. In other words, what happens before sleep from a behavior analyst results in sleep and that component of sleeping is um, partly operant and that the falling asleep is the end of a chain of behavior that starts with bedtime preparation and then a period of quiet or quietude is what behavioralists like to refer to it as that results in sleep. So perhaps the behavior of falling asleep from a behavioralist perspective is that that behavior is reinforced by the sleep itself and therefore the component of sleeping is operant or learned, that component. So falling asleep is the kind of the end of a chain of behavior, starting with bedtime preparation, 
um, and then a period of quietude that results in sleep. So similar to hunger or what a behaviourist would call, likes to call, because we're technical, deprivation of food by the environment, resulting in a person engaging in behaviour to get food and thereby reducing their hunger or that feeling of being deprived of calories and then reinforcing those behaviours that resulted in that state. Because if you've ever seen anyone that's really hungry, you'll see them quite madly searching cupboards, <laughs> opening and closing fridges, that results in that feeling of hunger dissipating. And sleep deprivation is one of those experiences for the human body because it is unpleasant. And so presumably behaviour that results in reducing that unpleasant state reinforces is reinforced. So the period of time since sleep was last obtained makes sleep more valuable as a reinforcer is what a behavioralist would say. In other words, the longer we go without sleep, the more we need to and want to sleep. Wow. So, ooh, interesting perspective because does that mean you see sleep as more of a voluntary choice or something that can be controlled regardless of bodily functions? Because, you know, OTs tend to see it more as a sort of a mixed bag, right? A combination of intrinsic and extrinsic learned factors. Great. Actually, Didi, I'm really glad you brought up choice and volition because this is something that you have you know recounted about a um an ot's perspective on lots of different behaviors so i'm really excited that i do want to bring that perspective on choice it's definitely an area where behavioralist brings a long history of research on how people choose what they do at any point in time uh, because all of us make these you know in inverted commas air, <laughs> air inverted commas choices you know, all day, every day. And I really want to go into that from a behavioural analyst perspective because we look at that quite differently, I think, to an OT perspective. We look at like schedules of reinforcement and something called the matching law. So if you don't mind me just pausing, using a pause button there on volition and choice, if you can just hold that thought and don't get too judgy through this episode, I promise we'll come back to that and find a common way to talk about volition and choice. Is that okay? Oh, brilliant. Sounds Great. Good. So I'm um, just going back a step there. So from a behavioralist perspective, each one of the behavioral steps in a sleep chain, I'm just creating that term for myself, but a chain of behavior that becomes, you know, something that then becomes embedded behavior or habitual, from our perspective, it needs to come under the control of a reliable precursor. That's what we call an SD or a discriminative stimuli. Is it something that reliably precedes a behavior that then is reinforced and that can be either outside or within the skin and it's why though there is a lot of research in creating consistent sleep routines when I say there is I could say perhaps there is about creating sleep routines because what is the consequence for one behavior in a sleep chain is the antecedent to the next step so you know I'm I'm sure you went through that with your children as well Aditi is trying to create predictable and consistent sleep routines so you know having dinner at the same time of night and then brushing teeth and then putting on pajamas and some parents will use massage or or music and if you consistently if the end result of that is that sleep results that whole chain of behavior could condition up as one big behavioral chain and that's how a behavioralist looks at, at sleeping, quite a, a complex series of behavior that results in the body being asleep. 
So, you know, if I think about, there must be a huge cultural variance then because that behavioral chain or routine, there's so many cultures who just don't do that. Yes. Yeah. And right? I, I, yeah, I agree with that. I just actually was at a pediatrician's office last week with this, with a family of mine that's Indian. And he was talking about the differential in sleep across culture because, and I lived in Spain for a year as well, where, you know, kids are awake often to like 11 and 12 o'clock at night frequently. And it's, you know, you can go down to the park at midnight and there's kids running around. So, you know, it's true. There is a real cultural difference. And I haven't looked into the research on how that impacts learning and behavior, et cetera. But for instance, in, you know, in Spain, they have um, an afternoon siesta whereby the kids rest and, and get sleep. So it'd be interesting to look at, you know, the number of hours across cultures that, that children are getting. I wonder if that has any long-term, you know, consequence or learning outcomes or something. But there you go. That's maybe a topic for another day. But you're right. Big cultural difference in, in sleep routines. Okay. But going back to children with special needs and uh, specifically ASD, I did see several studies that have hypothesized that sleep disturbances are often associated with or even caused by sensory sensitivities in ASD clients. So researchers have discovered there's, there's a huge link, significant link between sleep behaviors, patterns, and the way the body experiences sensory stimuli or sensations. Mm. Mm. So this uh, particular research paper found that children who were hypersensitive, so oversensitive to touch, sensitive to light, movement, they had a harder time falling asleep. So ABA therapists are probably like, what on earth is that about, right? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's, there's no doubt that when you're dealing with a child that has a diagnosed autism, I want to make it absolutely clear that behavioralists would, I don't think, at least any that I've worked with, would never argue that children with autism tend to, you know, respond to stimuli in un unusual ways and different ways from typical developing children. So, you know, it's not unusual to see children with autism having their hands over their ears, for instance, to shelter out noise or, you know, to avoid certain stimuli that other children might really engage, enjoy engaging with. But I don't think it's, a, it's as simple as just saying it's just purely sensory because frequently, you know, I'll give you one example of a child that presented to me whose parents said that they had a real sensitivity to noise. You know, when I did my functional assessment, I discovered that this child didn't like going to assembly. And when he was put in assembly and put his hands over his ears, they would take him outside. So he became quite fluent at, <laughs> at using right. that behavior, right? It was reinforced by removal from an environment that he did not like. So, in, and, you know, there's, of course, there's a social aspect to that as well, because without any judgment at all, you know, there's a lot of children or uh, with autism that don't mind putting their hands over their ears and look different, right? But if you said to a typical developing kid, hey, you know, you look a little unusual when you put your hands over their ears, that is going to shape their behavior going forward. So there is, you know, that sensory complexity, there is a behavioral component to all of that. For instance, we have in our clinic, we have a bell that we ring when, I know you have something similar, Duty. when kids pass programs, it's really loud. I mean, it's a ship bell. It literally is was designed <laughs> for a ship. So when kids with autism come to our clinic, a lot of them will put their hands over their ears when they first hear that 
But then we anticipate when that's going to happen, right? And we go, hey, listen up. The bell is going to ring. Can you keep your hands strong for me? And guess what? They don't put their hands over their ears anymore because we shape and reinforce, you know, tolerating that noise. So there is, yeah, of course, it's complex, but there is no doubt that many kids with autism present to me with heightened sensitivity to noise, you know, different sensory experience through food. So I never want to deny that we don't look at that component. We absolutely do. But I think you have to be careful there too, not just to say it's only sensory because as soon as you start reinforcing any behavior that might be blocking stimuli, you know, either seeking or blocking sensory stimuli, you add a behavioral component as well. So that's, that's what I want to add to that. But in terms of sleep, the same thing can occur, right? So, you know, when we come back to looking at our views on these topics that we present, I feel like we get to the same outcome, but often, you know, using different terms or different explanations for how they occur. In relation to sleep, I think I just maybe could describe this as like the chicken and egg argument. So, for instance, you know, from a behavioralist perspective, sure, let's just say you have a child that has autism that is more sensitive to noise and Perhaps that could be a whole nother area of topic, Adini, on habituation and how habituation comes about. You know, it's desensitization, I guess, to stimuli that we're all exposed to and whether, you know, how autism impacts your ability to habituate. But then don't forget, as I can say this as a parent as well of a child with autism, parents with children with autism, some of us, more sensitive to noise as well because sometimes I go, <laughs> used to go over to friends' houses And their kids would be crying or, you know, like, you know, falling asleep and having a bit of a cry and stuff. And I'd be like, oh, is he okay? And they'd be like, oh, it's it's fine. No worries. And, you know, meanwhile, there's other kids coming in and out of the room. And I'm like, shh, you might wake the baby. And the kids are like, what? Nah, you know, it's lucky he'll fall asleep. But as parents of children with autism, very frequently those noises that our children make, you know, particular um, noises as well, maybe precursor behaviors to more serious behavior as well. So, you know, I remember the noise my daughter used to make before she would jump to her knees, you know, something embedded in my brain forever. So, you know, there's a complexity there too that parents with children with autism are going to be highly sensitized to noise as well. And therefore, possibly, I'm not saying they all do this, but attend to that noise with either, you know, going into the room, comforting, providing something that may reinforce that noise and then attention provided to that or escape from, you know, or maybe picking them up and take them out of the bedroom. So this is why sleep is so complex and why, you know, these very detailed questionnaires on looking at parent behaviour around their children's behaviour have been developed as well. So, yeah, and then we go back to this issue of you know, infant sleep, early baby sleep, Aditi, and in babies, the REM and the non-REM cycles are quicker. And as such, REM sleep is preceded by periods of arousal where it's more likely they will wake. And just going back on what I said then, if it makes them more vulnerable to waking and having awake durations, if that can also be accompanied by crying, it's more likely that parent interaction can come about through those nighttime wakings. So you know how it's frequent for parents to say, actually, this is not your experience and not my experience, but at least in some of the parents I came by, is that as time went on, went on through their third or even fourth child, the fourth child learned to sleep, you know, <laughs> better. And, you know, one could hypothesize that perhaps it was because they were not as attentive, they were so busy and attending to other children, etc., that children were able to, 
you know, they, there was no reinforcement provided to those sort of early unhappiness periods during sleep arousals and then they, you know, they were sort of went back to sleep on their own. So, you know, if learning to fall asleep, which I think there is, you know, behavioural research on this, requires periods of quietude and those periods are interrupted, it's possible that there is this behavioural component to waking, right? That's kind of the issue that I want to bring up. Well, I'm glad you did because uh, I would say that OTs agree to all of the above. And when we look at a child for sleep issues, we look at their occupational profile, we look at the parent profile, parent values. And I can tell you coming from a Indian culture, often extended family culture, where it's loud and nobody cares <laughs> that it's loud. <laughs> right. And here, when I came to the US, it was like, it was so stringent, like, you know, bedtime is seven o'clock or six o'clock and everyone has to be quiet and all that. And I just found it really interesting. And I've worked with so many students in the past who've had sensory issues and sleep difficulties. And I had an interesting case where this little boy, he could not sleep unless it was loud. Like he needed that conundrum. And then when we looked into it, he was uh, from a different culture and he was in an extended family household. And it was lots of people, very loud. And they moved to this country and mum was like, you can't sleep. And I remember we would try different, you know, typically we'd try like lullabies and sounds and all that. Nothing worked. And then one day we put just some random, loud, crazy song. I don't even know what it was. And he loved it. And then, like, the worse it got as far as it, it tones and frequencies, the more he enjoyed it. And we recorded cafeteria sounds, like being right. in the cafeteria. He loved that. It was the most bizarre thing, but that just helped him sleep. So I absolutely agree that the environment and how you're trained how you are habituated makes a huge difference. So I'm glad we agree on something. Yay. Yeah, I feel like it's a behavioural account of sleep right there. You're because right. when you took her out, you know, the consequences for that, you know, chain of sleep, when you took those out, he couldn't sleep. It actually, right. you know, reinforces a behavioural perspective. So, yeah, we're on the same page there, Daddy. Great. Woohoo! So, okay, going back to ASD, I imagine you guys work on sleep a lot too, correct? Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of published research in this area. I guess if you look at, you know, what the ultimate goal is of behaviour analysis, it is to improve socially meaningful behaviours. And I can't think of anything, you know, the the behaviours of sleeping, eating, toileting. There are three prerequisite behaviours really that behaviour analysts want to ensure are in place to make sure that a child can, you know, maximise their potential, for want of a, a better word, but, you know, be the best human being they can be because without adequate diet, without adequate sleep and not being on a toilet yourself, you know, life can be pretty challenging for yourself and your caregivers. So we absolutely do do that. And, of course, let's go back to an earlier episode there, sleep is something a dead man can't do, so therefore it is behaviour and very important to health and, as you said earlier, Aditi, cognitive function and there is a lot of research to, to support, you know, um, its uh, implication to challenging behaviour in children with autism, not to mention parental stress levels amongst other things. And I can remember 
I don't know if there's any research on this, but I don't know what the divorce rates are around sleeping disorders, <laughs> but they've got to be high because, you know, there is nothing more challenging as a mother yeah. having yeah. got your baby to sleep and then dad comes home, la, 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 you know, banging, crashing, slamming doors and the baby wakes. That is a recipe for divorce right there, particularly yes. if you are sleep de- deprived and, you know, ex- have, you know, an extended period of time with the child so yeah I, I don't know what the research is on that but definitely parental stress levels around uh, sleep uh, can be very very high her causal links have been shown though between poor sleep habits and learning difficulties so therefore it's a very important area of us to work on to ensure that sleep is in place you know so it, we don't we can eliminate that as a cause of learning difficulties if we briefly return to concepts that we raised in episode four, reflexive behavior, respondent conditioning and operant conditioning, then those things sort of all come together to make sleep a series of complex, you know, behavioral units, if you want to describe it as that, some of which is unlearned, like I said, the REM, non-REM sleep components, and then stimuli conditioned around sleep, such as, you know, feeding and putting on pajamas, playing music or loud noise in the example that you gave. So that's, you know, what we would call these kind of conditioned stimuli evoking sleep. And then we, it gets more complex because if the infant is then comforted when it's crying or fussing, then the possibility of reinforcing bedtime refusal or extending the time it takes to get to sleep. And then, you know, disturbing that process of what we call that quietude process of a child learning to fall back asleep by themselves can be reinforced by, you know, a parent comforting the child in the presence of learning that behavior. So poof, that's a long way of saying, yes, there's a lot to be involved in there as a behavior analyst because there's a lot of behavior. Wow. So really behavior is in every little component of sleep. So I think I really... I, I can't emphasize this enough to my fellow OTs out there. If you are addressing sleep and looking at sensory aspects, you really have to consider the manifestation of behavioral consequences. It just sounds like it's a really fine line there. So OTs definitely, you know, have started thinking about behavior. But do ABA therapists think about sensory you know, strategies and all that when they're considering sleep? Yeah, I guess, you know, Aditi, it's that word sensory that we need to keep translating into behavioural terms because absolutely there, um, you know, if we look at sleep studies and the different sleep problems that have been identified in inverted commas, I want to say that sensory component, you know, of course gets looked at because, you know, if you're at, at any intervention, there is going to be a component of touch or smell or sight or in this case sound that impacts someone's ability to learn anything. So definitely that sensory input, maybe one day I'll be able to use that word without, you know, being uneasy about it for my behavioural <laughs> friends out there. So, you know, it might be a good way of starting to look at, you know, what are the types of sleep problems that we see and that have been recognised in the literature that have been diagnosed because studies have been designed specifically to address the different types of sleep problems and from a behavioralist perspective based on the function of that sleep problem. So sleep problems can be sleep onset delay which we all know about kids not wanting to go to sleep or refusing to go to sleep then nighttime waking so you know frequent arousal during the night and then often the one us parents hate so much which is early morning waking or a combination of you know those three 
and they have been looked at separately in the behavioural literature. When you add in a bedtime resistance that can come about by, you know, on sleep onset delay, and then potentially you have a complex combination of both, you know, biological, circadian, and like neurodevelopmental factors as well that are influenced, but not solely attributable to environmental and behavioural variables. You know, stole that from a steep study because I thought it was such it was such a good description of what was occurring. Some of those you could easily identify as sensory. So behavioralists assess the contributing factors that are determining each of those sleep problems using a number of different assessments, including the behavior evaluation of disorders of sleep. There's one, there's another one uh, conveniently called BEDS which I think stands for Behavioural Evaluation of Disorders of Sleep. Well, that's BEDS, sorry. Let me go back. That's BEDS. I like that abbreviation there. And then the tool that I've most frequently used is Dr. Greg Hanley's tool, which is a sleep assessment and treatment tool, which we have as a resource in this episode. So, yeah, so it's important then to look at trying to break down, uh, you know, what is the, the sleep problem? And then secondly, what are the contributing factors to that problem? Okay, so in a nutshell... The sensory aspects definitely can exacerbate the behavioral aspects of sleep. Yes, and vice versa, I guess. Um, yes. <laughs> so quite a convoluted mess of learned and unlearned behaviors. Mm-hmm. If a child neurophysiologically struggles to fall asleep, that would be more unlearned. I can see how, and, and that's where often we, you know, say it's sensory. I can see how caregivers' responses to that or even an OT suggestion of do this or do that could reinforce those inappropriate learned behaviors. Or am I just oversimplifying it too much here? No, I think that is a really good summary. And I want to make sure that I'm not coming across as arrogant here and um, and saying, you know, gosh, behavioralists get it all right and OTs don't know what they're doing. That is never my perspective because constantly being opened up to, you know, interventions and research that comes from OT, that is enlightening to me. So, But the way that you put it there, I think is right, Aditi. It's a sort of a chicken and egg thing. And this is where assessment is critical to, you know, determine the function of the sleep problem and therefore recommendations for a sleep intervention. Well, I think it also brings to fruition the whole point of an ABA and OT collaboration. I think this is where we need to collaborate. I agree. You might work with a client and do X, Y and Z, and then I'd come and do, you know, ABC and then we're in trouble because... So I really, really think this is where we can really come together. So OTs also present a view of, you know, he has difficulty regulating to fall asleep and because of, you know, X, Y sensory issues in their repertoire and they can't help it. So I do think OTs have more of a, oh, he can't help it. And therefore, I'm not sure if I want to implement these behavioral strategies because it seems harsh so really finding that balance again would be key and talking it through with an ABA therapist would be key. Yes because I think what you're kind of alluding to Aditi is that some of these interventions from a behavior uh, in a behavior analytic interventions of for instance controlled crying or what we call escape extinction for sleep might appear to some people as being a little harsh and that's why I sort of put in there my, you know, my precursor that we have to ensure that we're not dealing with any, you know, medical underlying medical complications when we're dealing with sleep. But looking at the setting events 
surrounding sleep, such as diet and sleep hygiene, sleep routines, parent experiences, etc., are all, you know, also, you know, as you mentioned there, co-sleeping too, are all important factors in assisting parents with sleep issues because while the interventions can be difficult to implement, I think the long-term outcome of sleeping problems, because my daughter had these, my second daughter had these sleep issues, you know, up to the age she was eight before I really decided that I was ready to do some pretty serious intervention with her. And I was a single parent. So eight years of disturbed sleep, um, a marriage breakdown, I want to say. I won't say that sleep was the only reason for that, but um, definitely a contributing factor without a doubt. You know, these and then long-term potentially learning difficulties, it is, you know, something that needs to be addressed sometimes with a veracity that, you know, requires everybody to come together and to ensure that it can be done. So we start, from our perspective, we would start with an intensive assessment, then look at baseline measures. Again, that's what we do. We would take, you know, uh, periods that it's taking to what the sleep onset delay is, the number of times that the child wakes. This is challenging data to take. Don't, I'm not I'm oversimplifying this. And it requires, from my perspective at least, and from a behavioural perspective in general, that the behaviour under treatment comes under observation, which brings with it the complications that you need to observe a child sleeping or going to sleep. Sleep diaries are one way of doing that. So, But then you're going to be reliant on a parent that's already sleep-deprived, accurately recording the information in amongst all the other chaos that's going on in the family, and then observing the child sleeping to determine if night waking is occurring. That also brings with it its own challenges because you don't want to wake the child, you know, by going in and observing. So now there are really good, of course, um, technology has come a long way now with, you know, remote video cameras and they have sleep sensors on them so they determine when the child's waking. So it makes it a lot easier. You can record all night video footage and then later somebody can take data on it. But there are also sensors that you can get that a child can wear to assist in, in getting really good data to look at latency to fall asleep or time awake during the night. Studies such as the SWT, sorry, SAWT, I should say, reported that playing with books, magazines, and paper while in bed, interacting with siblings, engaging in motor and vocal stereotypy, there you go, there's that sensory component, listening to music, playing with electronic devices, repeatedly asking questions to parents, you know, for verbal children, accessing food, intrusive noise and light, and physical comforting were all functional variables that had to be subsequently addressed through, you know, multi-procedure interventions, including parent education. So, you know, it's a summary of the things that are looked at through that assessment and the summary of things were, were addressed during sleep time interventions. So what about OT as a sleep disorder Aditi, do you look at those different distinctions of different types of sleep disorders? Well, again, I think some of it is how we label things, right? Mm -hmm. Language again. So poor sleep can be an indicator of sensory processing difficulties in our world. And there are different subtypes of types of sensory disorders that impact sleep differently. Sometimes it might be the routine leading up to bedtime, which is dysregulated, or perhaps a child is so overstimulated from the day that they can't settle down to go to sleep. Other times they, not, they may not get enough stimulation and have been so understimulated that the body has been essentially asleep all day long. So all these variances can impact the quality of sleep too. As adults with typical neurology, we have the ability and we do it somewhat, you know, inadvertently 
to regulate our sensory systems throughout the day, transitioning through periods of alertness, sluggishness, you know, and, and we engage in activities to help us get there, like you might go and drink a glass of water or coffee, etc. And so we build these activities into our lives. But what happens is children who have sleep issues have a difficult time regulating. And, and they don't necessarily have access to these strategies. And that's where OTs come in and uh, try to figure that out. So these children often depend on co-regulation, environmental strategies, and contrived sensory input to help them. But I, I just want to point out that these strategies are often just interim solutions. Our goal, too, is to get that child to sleep on their own. So I think we're, again, starting at different points and coming together. Yeah. And Aditi, what about the sort of data you might keep in determining what the cause of the sleep problem is? Oh, blaster data. You know what? We're always going to come full short of data collections. And, and again, this is one of the issues we have is that we take a very great holistic view that contribute to sleep dysfunction, which includes sleep preparation, participation. We measure latency, like you mentioned, duration, maintenance or drowsiness, etc. And we typically start with the sensory profile again, looking at those areas. And then we measure using the brief infant sleep questionnaire. And that tells us a little bit about nocturnal sleep duration, daytime sleep duration, sleep onset, etc, etc. So those are the tests we typically use. But again, they're more global tests and not in the moment tests. No problems. And look, that is not about making anybody wrong, except that what's recounted to me many times in working with other professionals is that it didn't work. But when I asked them what didn't work or how long it had been used or what was the problem they were actually trying to treat, in other words, is this a bedtime resistance? Is this bedtime waking? That is what they weren't able to present. So I don't think you can say something is not working if you don't have data to support it. Now, if it has been trialed and, you know, and data taken on it and the sleep is not improving, in fact, you have hours of sleep and the sleep is worsening or the number of nighttime wakings, then you can say... It didn't work, but one risk is that it wasn't implemented consistently. There was no, you know, written program to train a parent how to do it consistently. Data was not kept, and therefore, actually, you're making the problem worse without knowing it by, you know, parents not following a prescription. And in some areas of life, that's kind of not important. You know, if you're teaching a kid to play with a toy, not, you know, not critical. But when it comes to sleep or eating, I think that's where we really can add something to the equation, and not in a making it wrong thing, but this is our science and our underpinnings, just like OT has a lot to contribute, I feel, to our world in terms of how to ensure children can, you know, are using their bodies well and engaging with the environment well and highly attentive and receptive to instruction. I really feel like the OT world has a lot to contribute there, You know, looking at how is a child sitting in a chair, what's their core strength like to be able to sit and engage in therapy, what is their ability to reach for stimuli? And, you know, those components of IT are very powerful to a behavioural analyst. I want to open that to the world of, you know, behavioural analysts, what OT knows about how the body interacts with the environment. But when it comes to measurement and deciding whether something is working or not, we really know how to do that well. So mm -hmm. uh, that's a long you way. Do. Of <laughs> you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I want to add there that, 
if OT, one of our core tenets is to be holistic, and if we're truly going to be holistic, we no- need to look at sleep. From the behavioral perspective, and really understand it, so it's not just a just measure it. You need to make sure that you are looking at every angle, and collaborating with an ABA therapist allows us to do that very effectively. Great, right? li- great. Listen uh, to that listening, like not making anybody wrong about their own perspectives.、Yeah. But you know, it, let's just say for now, there was something outside the OT or the behavior analytic world. That contributed to the clientele that I was working with. I want to know about it, and I'm just going to send a little shout out to that, to that speechy that reached out to me that heard about our podcast. Thank you. I won't mention her by name because I don't have her consent, but she reminded me I have this one child that I'm really struggling with to、uh, get different、uh, voice sounds, and she reminded me of these amazing switches to match auditory sounds, and、uh, I had forgotten about all of that work that SLPs do in auditory matching, and I was so excited by that. So. I think you know, opening yourself to outside fields, even though you might have different perspective or underpinnings, you often come up with real extraordinary strategies that really impact your interventions. So, thank you for that listening, Adeti. I love that you,、uh, you know, we can laugh about this and joke about it, but that you really see that that you know, there's a contribution for behavior analysis in the OT world, not in a making you wrong way, but guess what? There's something we know that can really impact your awesome work that you're already doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about those interventions. Okay, sleep problems that ABAs do. Yep, absolutely. So one procedure that has been used is a faded bedtime procedure, and again, this is coming down to assessment and assessing. Okay, what are these parents able to do as well? What is the environment the child lives in, and what are they be consistently going to be able to implement successfully? And Patrick Fryman's, you know, intervention is a less h- harsh intervention than some of the, you know. Control crying interventions and something that we'll look at next week, but one procedure is the faded bedtime procedure that's been successfully used in children with sleep onset problems. This is whereby you push back the bedtime from baseline measurement. So let's just say it's taking a child thirty minutes to get to sleep. They go to sleep at eight thirty every night. You might push back the bedtime to nine o'clock or nine thirty, and keep the child awake through any means possible. <laughs> <laughs> for a longer period, so they are more likely to go to sleep. And you know, from a behavioural perspective, it's a response cost because it's not very pleasant to be kept awake when you're starting to get tired. But this procedure has been used successfully in both typical children and children with ASD, with the effects of reducing delayed sleep onset and establishing improved sleep routines. So that's one procedure. I'll put a link to some of those studies in in our resources. Other interventions have included positive bedtime routines, and I feel like this is very OT friendly type interventions. But there's a lot of studies there too, published with success, being antecedents to creating that chain of behaviour and quietude that results in、um, sleep being evoked, and often accompanied by social extinction. So removing attention for less preferred. Behaviors through the the bedtime process, and then as I mentioned before, the most well known procedure outside of the behavioural field is Dr. Patrick Fryman's bedtime pass. That's a combination of social extinction and what we call differential reinforcement, and we'll be recovering covering this intervention in a lot of detail next week,、uh, next podcast I should say, and how to train parents to conduct that intervention. So. And then, of course, there is just pure escape extinction, which is after assessment that there is no underlying medical condition. You are going to put a child to sleep, and there can be a variety of interventions as to how you respond to the child. 
you can let the child cry for a certain period of time before going in and extend that period of time before you go in and attend to the child um, with the result that eventually the child will fall asleep. Or you can go cold turkey and decide this is we're going to let the child sleep for uh, cry for a period of time until such time as they fall asleep on their own. And there is a variety of different interventions, again, based on assessment and sleep, the problem, the extent of the sleep problem and the parent's ability to be able to put in place those types of interventions. What about Aditi, OT interventions for sleep well, I think uh, you're probably familiar with most of them. You know, there are lots of sort of cognitive strategies like social stories, um, sleep hygiene, sensory-based strategies, you know, environmentally that we are adapting the environment for. Medical aspects, medication might be um a component we work with the doctor with. So really, you know, sensory-based st- strategies, we try to use the sort of two to four week trial before determining its effectiveness. Again, we could definitely use your help in pinpointing that, refining that. Maintaining a sleep journal and a log by parents or caregivers is often something we use. And then, of course, really doing a lot of accommodations in the environment. So reducing the stimuli, maintain, manipulating the environment, schedule of when sensory input is given. So there's a quote in the OT literature, which I loved, and it's a good night's sleep begins in the morning, right? So if you look at our sensory system, we need X amount of input during the day to help us regulate to sleep. Again, these are very antecedent type behaviors that we want them to engage in. I'm sure you've heard of the sensory diet, which is basically, you know, therapeutic use of sensory activities that are embedded in our daily routine. And as I mentioned before, you and I are doing this already. You know, if you come home from work, what do you do? Some of us go take a long bath. Some of us eat popcorn and watch Netflix. You know, it depends on what your thing is. So that's essentially what we do in the OT world. It gets really tricky when we don't consider timing. Because that's where, if it becomes a consequence rather than an antecedent, which with sleep, it's so tricky, that can really make a huge error in intervention. And there are major consequences for parents and for children. So that's where, um, you know, I think us really talking about this and passing this is really important. So let's stay on the case of Stella, if we can go back to her and talk about it a little bit. She's nine months old, a preemie, who she was having difficulty with tolerating touch and being handled by mum. And she was displaying a delayed sleep onset, night waking, and unwarranted co-sleeping. So the parents tried having her cry it out, but, you know, they didn't see much improvement in the sleep patterns and she didn't stay asleep during the night. She woke up every one to two hours crying and then parents had have to go to attend to her. So that's kind of the case study. And I'm just going to tell you how I would start, you know, addressing this as an OT. I would talk to mom and ask her to log her activities for the day, what she does with Stella, what type of routines. And then I would also look at some client factors, parent values, co-sleeping, all those, you know, what do you care about? That's going to be really important. What strategies have they tried? What worked? What didn't work? Since I know Stella was in the neonatal unit, I would confer with the therapist there to see what strategies might have worked. And are there any medical factors, reflux, medications, etc., right? Then, 
you know, once I have this information, I'd probably start with deep pressure is sort of the go-to in sensory world. It really organizes the body and helps regulation. So swaddling is something that I would do with uh, what I would say to mom, let's do that prior to falling asleep. So she, mom would keep a diary for about one to two weeks to see how long it takes Stella to fall asleep and then introduce the swaddling and see if that changes. And then we'd consider adding different, um, you know, sensory strategies, adding white noise, massage, all that. Now, I'm more interested to know what you would do, Mandy. <laughs> so I guess the first point there is we would uh, run the SAWT or a similar sleep intervention, again, to address, I don't want to go over too much of what you've said there, but, but we would get data on the amount of sleep, by hours. So if this is a really serious sleep disorder, presumably um, parents are going to invest a fair amount of time and money in this intervention. So looking at getting proper equipment to measure sleep, uh, I think sleep diaries, there is some research on matching sleep diaries to actual sleep. And studies came up with varying outcomes for that. Sometimes there was like a 70% accuracy, sometimes an 80% accuracy. But um, if you really have a significant problem here as behaviourists, we want really accurate data to see if our interventions are impacting, you know, the amount of sleep by minutes, etc. So um, the important part then is to assess, as you say, parental values and their ability to perform consistent sleep interventions because some parents have a lot of resources available to them, some parents work, you know, some there's other children in the household, etc. And so while the literature has demonstrated much success for controlled crying or at least periods of crying it out, what behaviourists call escape extinction, this can be brutal for some parents and therefore they may give in and therefore reinforce longer periods of crying. So we have to look at very carefully about the parental unit um, in terms of, you know, the intervention that we recommend. In such a young child as Stella, we might recommend establishing a positive bedtime routine, similar to what you've said, establishing clear antecedents and reinforces for each of those um, behaviours that you set up for pre-bed behaviours and then graduated extinction which is using longer and longer periods of time to attend to the child starting with immediately attending to the child and then extending that time by a very clear amount of minutes and then analyse data as we go. This is a, a, a form of the Ferber method. It's more palatable than full extinction or full control crying. And it has been used successfully in multiple studies with rapid improvement in sleep onset. You know, it's as little as three days in some studies and rapid improvements in nighttime wakefulness. Wow, okay. So the Ferber method is something that uh, behavior analysts would use. Yes, it is escape extinction and it is, okay. it's just fading the, uh, you know, the amount of time. And so, for instance, you might reinforce immediate crying on night one, two minutes of crying on night two, three minutes of crying, and it would be minimal social attention but going back in and comforting the child and then extending the period of time over which you do that. Now, I know you sort of have given some accounts with babies that would cry for long periods of time. In that type of intervention where you're in daily contact with parents, you know, you would you would get to a point in time where you might say this is not working and this, the parents cannot tolerate this amount of a crying. That's why this is kind of a faded procedure. I have never had a case 
in the sleep interventions that I've done, the way the child didn't, the parents couldn't tolerate the amount of crying that resulted in the child being able to learn to go to sleep on its own. I'm sure there are cases of that, but I think I would have changed my intervention long before I got to long periods of crying and looked at those antecedent variables, parental attention, yeah, bedtime routines, oh, etc., yeah. in a lot more detail before I would let babies cry for long extended periods of time so yeah that's- oh so glad you said that so glad because you know I was about to put the, push the pause button for OT <laughs> because yeah. when they're thinking oh my gosh you're going to have this preemie that we are postulating may have some lingering sensory issues um, has difficulty self-calming and you're just going to let her cry that just seems wrong right but pause button for OTs. Comments like sensory overloads, shutdown is what comes to mind for many OTs when we talk about this. But that what you'll find, you meaning OTs out there, is that by taking some data and on what typical self-regulation is for Stella and also slicing it very thin, like Mandy mentioned, the interventions are very very thin. We are staying away from that possible notion of sensory overload um, in the OT world. So again, communicating with the ABA therapist is going to be of paramount importance. Yeah, and parent training, right? Because Mm -hmm. understanding, let's just say that the behavioural analyst has said tonight, you know, you're going to let her cry for 15 minutes before you attend to her. Understanding that, of course, as a parent, you have the right to do whatever you want, obviously as a parent and you don't have to do what your advisor is telling you to do but understanding the consequence of not following that because I have had you know parents that I worked with where we were using escape extinction safe for tantrums and I always say to them if you are going to reinforce a tantrum the time to do it is now not in 20 minutes time right so if you say and I, sometimes I have really parents because we don't make it wrong when you can't follow through on an intervention you know, if you know that you have an appointment to get to or you have to get out the door, the time to reinforce a tantrum and give the child what they want is early in the chain of a tantrum, not when they've been crying for an hour. You know what I mean? So um, so you can't always get it right. But as a, understanding as a parent, go, okay, well, I understand that I'm going to make a decision that I'm going to go and attend to the child before the 15 minutes, which is what is in the written program, but I'm going to reinforce an earlier you know, approximation of the behavior. So that's your right and your choice, but at least giving them training to understand the consequences of their interventions that they're using themselves, I think is is empowering and therefore, mm-hmm. but also allows the behavior analyst to look at the intervention and design it so that it can be successful for the parent. No, definitely. Okay, so. Yeah, just on that I one issue of letting the baby cry it out, I did it. I I did just want to say that I think I've said it in multiple times now because it's so important. (laughs) Is that we are not, or at least I'm not a medical doctor. I'm. I don't know if there are any BCBAs that are medical doctors. I'd love to hear from them, but uh, I have this amazing pediatrician that I work with, and I just happen to have his mobile number. (laughs) going to give it out to anybody but just saying he is the sort of pediatrician that is available you know for regular consultation what uh that's a real asset to have and that understands behavior analysis and data so having someone like that that you can say this is the procedure that we're going to you know prescribe for this child do i have medical sign off 
to you know undertake this procedure is this something that you would support and I did this just recently with a child that has self-injury in his repertoire he injures because he has eczema uh, sometimes he injures before he has eczema and he goes to itch and I wanted to bring in non-contingent itching on an hourly basis to reduce his desire to itch and he loved mm. it because I said we will wow. take data on it we will implement three minutes an hour uh, we'll uh, then we will not provide attention or itching at any other time and I was able to consult with him on the extent of the eczema, how much itch this would be causing, you know, uh, what the, and then take data and show him the impact on the reduction in self-injury associated with it. So having a really good medical doctor that can give you that comfort mm-hmm. that, you know, you're not going to push a, a, a baby to that position that you talk about there of sensory overload or shutdown. Right. From a shutdown, from my perspective, that's a, a harsh word of saying that this baby was not medically resilient enough to cope with the intervention. So I think this is why I keep putting in this, uh, you know, message about full medical history, medical advice before perceiving, particularly when you have um, significant behavioural challenges involved and ensuring that you have experts that have experience that you're consulting with in this field before you do an implementation with a premature baby, for instance. So I think we've said it before, but we have included a copy of Greg Hanley's uh, assessment and the OT perspective that you uh, assessment tool that you mentioned, Didini. And also I have included a study by James Lewiselli, who summarised all of the behavioural assessment, measurement and intervention procedures. It's a really good paper if you get a chance to look at it. So I've included that paper in our reference materials. Brilliant. I also included an OT article published in 2018, so very recent, on the OT practice and sleep management, sort of a review on all the models and um, research. It's a brilliant resource too. So I think we've got it all covered. Lots of great resources. Next week, we're going to keep on the topic of sleep, but we're expanding to a wider audience of typically developing children because everyone seems to have sleep issues. (laughs) And we're going to review the use of Patrick Freiman's bedtime pass. I'm so, so excited about this one. A really well-known intervention, like Mandy said, and it's looking at establishing bedtime routines. And we're also going to discuss the literature on screen time, blue light, all that, and its impact on sleep. So whether you have children of your own or have clients you can help, this is going to be an episode you don't want to miss for sure. Great. Uh, Daniel, that brings us to a conclusion. The um, takeaways from today is establishing clear sleep routines, avoiding interruptions to known precursors to falling asleep, probably important documentation on interventions to improve sleep, which we're going to be sharing with you, Uh, looking at uh, avoiding bright lights, access to caffeine through, for instance, Coke and Pepsi, etc., important in the lead up to sleep, looking at how daytime sleep impacts as well um, and other really good ideas Adeti, for analyzing a child's day to ensure that they are not aroused at sleep time and have adequate access to to exercise and other things that would evoke sleep at night avoiding things like late time meals etc and then sharing with you the latest research on sleep literature sleep uh, questionnaires which will be available for download in our facebook group so uh, that's lots of takeaways for today 
Yes, indeed. I think I want to take sleep now. <laughs> I need to take a nap for sure. Great. Thanks to all of you who have reached out to us. OT's ABA psychologist was also a new person and also most recently SLPs. Yay, our team is growing. Collaborators are definitely welcome. And by the way, we also have a YouTube channel now. Remember, our most valuable resource is each other. So without collaboration, our growth is limited to our own perspectives. So hashtag collaboration over competition. Until next time, bye-bye from the Windy City. And Peru from Down Under.